We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Italy has been the eternal birthplace of empires intent on conquest. Rome conquered most of Europe and the Middle East. They had tremendous influence on art, architecture, uh, government, and many other things. Uh, Hopefully food, because Italy has great food. Uh, But the United Nation of Italy, and I do mean United Nation of Italy, stands in the center of the Roman Empire, of course. Our guest today is military historian Christopher Kelly, who got involved with author uh, Britain Stuart Laycock after reading his book, 2014's All the Countries We've Ever Invaded and the Few We Never Got Round To. <laughs> I love that title. Together, they authored 2015's America Invades. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Christopher Kelly, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, Bert, great to be with you uh, this morning. Thank you. Uh, they, that inspired him to take a look at how many countries Rome and Italy actually invaded. In his new book, Italy Invades, How Italians Conquered the World, Christopher Kelly writes about history from the Pope's machine gun to General Custer's last stand. Kelly, author of the new book, will talk about Italian influence in shaping the world we know today. Italy Invades, How Italians Conquered the World, is full of restless adventurers, canny generals, and the occasional scoundrel. It's a fast-paced and compelling read, a perfect sequel to America Invades. From the empire building of the Romans through the 16th and 17th century age of exploration to NATO, Italy has conquered and explored countries as diverse and far-ranging as Cape Verde and Mongolia and Uruguay. I bet you didn't know that, listener. But by the fact that you are listening to Keeping Democracy Alive, you care about imperialism and justice and people getting to govern themselves. From the start, Christopher Kelly, thanks again for being with us. I must confess that I love Italy. My brother and his partner have lived in Tuscany for well over 30 years, probably more than 35 now. And of course, I visited them. And whenever I hear American politicians proclaim that, oh, America is the greatest country in the world, that always tells me they've never been to Italy. (laughs) What was your purpose in writing this book, Christopher Kelly? Well, I have to admit that I have uh, similar uh, sentiments. Uh, I, I'm not Italian, but I'm Italian by marriage. So you could say that an Italian conquered me, so to speak. 
Uh, so I can understand. Uh, so, and I have been a frequent visitor to Italy. I, I love the country. My co-author does as well. He's he's written extensively about Roman Britain uh, and been interested in that topic. He studied classics at at Cambridge as well. So we both had this kind of affinity love for Italy. And after having written about, I and mean, he wrote about the British Empire. Together we wrote about, you know, the American superpower, of course, with America Invades. Uh, but it was natural for us to turn, uh, because of that, to kind of the grandfather of all empires uh, with the Romans and, and then following up, of course, with the Italians uh, afterwards, right up to the, to the present day. Well, certainly uh, the British and the French were very fond of empires uh, until the First World War kind of undid that. Belgium and Germany, if I have it right, really wanted to compete with the big boys, France and England. And they had their empires. They looked at Africa, did some very nasty things in Africa, especially Belgium uh, with the Congo there. Uh, And there was German empire into China. Uh, Tell us about Italy's desire for empire. Is, Is this something about the basic Italian outgoingness or what was their interest in empire? Well, I mean, if you think, I mean, Italian, I mean, we defined Italy in a very broad sense, including the Romans, who, you know, not all of them were, of course, Italian. There were two uh, uh, Roman emperors, Trajan and Hadrian, that were both from Spain, for example, and uh, yet, nevertheless, they were Roman. I mean, the Romans certainly had a massive empire that spanned all over uh, um, the Mediterranean. Sure. Yeah. They invaded Britain. Uh, they uh, were fighting 2,000 years ago in Iraq uh, and huh. all over North Africa. And, of course, they've had a profound impact on on America. I mean, the, the fact that we have a Senate in our country uh, is follows the Roman example. The fact that we have uh, the eagle as a as an icon of American power uh, takes, is straight from the Roman legions as well. So we have a lot, a huge debt to, to Rome and to the Italian example. Well, we couldn't have had uh, better cultural uh, leadership, that's for sure. Uh, and the, the Senate, all those things, I mean, it did, it did come from Rome. So much, you know, most Americans figure, oh, we're just sort of, you know, from England. But there's an awful lot from, from Rome and what is now uh, the, the nation state of Italy. And looking back a little bit into history uh, and impact on 21st century politics, Niccolo Machiavelli. He is the timeless master of politics. He just his his influence can hardly be overstated. Well, y- you write that he was that Nicola Machiavelli was the philosopher of invasions. I wonder if you could explain that, please. Right. Well, uh, Machiavelli said that uh, that the the proper role of a leader is is military uh, conquest, and so he was quite uh, direct about that. I mean, he. Ch- Chose he wanted to reunite Italy, which was uh, fractured into many small countries at right. that time, at the time of the Renaissance, and he chose as his vessel uh, Caesar Borgia uh, to try to the Pope's uh, the son of the bastard son of the Pope to uh, reunite uh, Italy, which uh, didn't turn out to be a successful uh, endeavor. I mean, the Pope, I mean, the Caesar Borgia didn't succeed, ended up uh, dying in a Spanish prison, but uh, but uh, but he did articulate. I think a philosophy of of militarism, uh, military adventurism, I suppose, that was uh, taken up by Mussolini, un- uh, un- 
to mm-hmm. Italy's uh, despair later on, I'm afraid. Yeah, definitely. I read a very interesting book, uh, which I highly recommend, called The Pope and Mussolini. I'm sorry, I can't recall the, na- the author's name, but it came out uh, last year. Very, very interesting right. how the two right. of them uh, kind of work together. Actually, wh- while we're on that subject, any uh, I don't know, you know, you must have looked a little bit at uh, the unique relationship between the Pope, who was not, I mean, not political, not fascist, certainly, and Mussolini, who was very down on religion, but they had kind of a uh, a detente of, of working together. And then, you know, Mussolini had his little invasion. Uh, he had a, a quick, easy victory over Ethiopia, of all places. Tell us about uh, Il Duce and, and, and the Pope, if you would. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, Il Duce, I mean, the Mussolini was a, uh, I mean, who came to power in 1922, formerly had been in the, served in World War I in the military, had been wounded right. in World War I, and he wanted to restore Roman grandeur to Italy. And, but he did so in a kind of half-baked way. I mean, when he put Italy onto the side and allied them with Hitler in 1940, declaring war on Britain and invading Egypt. Uh, he did so without any aircraft carriers, without any radar in his fleet, for example. And he did so, he put uh, Italy, he thought that Italy was going to be picking up easy winnings with the war being almost over and France almost collapsing. In fact, he ended up ranging Italy against the three greatest industrial powers in the world, in the United States of America, the British Empire, and the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that was a disaster for Italy. Um, and, and the war ultimately degenerated into almost a, a, an Italian civil war in 1943 with uh, Mussolini yes. um, being captured and a, a, a new government surrendering. And, and actually, Italians there were Italians, of course, that fought on as partisans uh, and on the Allied side and also in what are called the co-belligerent forces, uh, which again fought on the Allied side against Mussolini. Uh, so, you know, it, I mean, it became a very a difficult time for Italy. And 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 Mussolini's uh, relations with with the Pope. How did how did it seems like there were sort of two different strains entirely. Right. With the Pope, I mean, Mussolini was uh, anti-clerical, yes. also to some extent in the same way that Garibaldi. Garibaldi was a great Italian patriot and a military leader, but he was also anti-clerical. He was against uh, the power of the uh, the established church and. Uh, and later there was a kind of a reconciliation. I mean, there has been tension between mm-hmm. Italy and the Vatican over many years. I mean, the, the Pope had papal had secular powers, and Pope had his own army uh, right up until 1870. And we talked about in, Italian invasions everywhere. Well, one of the Italian invasions was actually of the Vatican, of the papal states, which were basically brought to an end with, a, with an invasion in, 18, in 1870 by the, uh, the Kingdom of Italy. Mm. And that's where the Pope's machine gun comes in. I was going to ask. The Pope had a, he had a, uh, what is called a Claxton gun, uh, which was at the San Giovanni Gate trying to defend and hold on to papal power, uh, which was obviously not successful. And what year was that with the Pope's machine gun? That was 1870. It was, Claxton gun was like a, uh, a, a gun that was a, an archetype of a Gatling gun. So, uh-huh. uh, that, that they had, and only three armies in the world had one: the British, the French, and the and the papal forces. Actually, so. mm. and technology is so important, and uh, you know the Italians have contributed an awful lot of uh, 
goods to uh, technology and science over the years. And 1870, of course, is a, a big year in, in Europe. It was the uh, uh, Prussia-Franco, uh, the, the Franco-Prussian War, and, and that, of course, led to uh, the First World War. I don't know if, if Italy had a role in that at all. Oh, well, it's interesting. In the Franco-Prussian War, uh, which, you know, did basically ended up, what happened is the French abandoned Rome. They had a garrison there before. So Napoleon III withdrew his garrison French troops out, which allowed an opportunity for Rome to move in. And at the same time, Garibaldi, who again, this great Italian patriot who led the thousand conquering Sicily, he actually volunteered to serve with the French uh, against the Prussians, in the, and it was his last campaign um, and, and on the losing side in the Franco-Prussian War. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, and, and, you know, Italy has, you know, the Italian soldier, let's face it, has been made fun of through the years that, uh, you know, all kinds of jokes about, uh, you know, you want to lose a war, just, just go with the uh, Italians. But that, that's, how did that, how did that uh, image happen? It sounds like from, from some of what you were talking about that, and how true or not true is it? Well, we, my co-author and I both feel that, that, there, that an injustice has been done in terms of, I mean, that, yes, they are, Italians have been a figure of fun, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, but I think that a lot of that is a result, is a hangover as a result of wartime propaganda from the Second World War, uh, and that there's a much richer story about Italian uh, military endeavors, I mean, throughout history, uh, not only going back to the Romans conquering, you know, basically a quarter of all the countries in the world, yeah. but also people like Napoleon. Napoleon was ethnically Italian. He was born in 1769 on Corsica, but the year before, Corsica had been sold by Genoa to France. So both of his parents were Genoese, essentially, and he grew up speaking Italian. He was later uh, crowned king of of Italy, and many of the Italians fought with him in Russia and and, uh, Spain, etc., uh, so, and also, you take a look at his just his name, Napoleon. It's actually two Italian words. Leone is lion, and Napoli is Naples. Right. Lion of Naples doesn't sound very French to me. Interesting, and that kind of explains uh, when I was visiting my brother up near Luca in Tuscany. Uh, Napoleon had some nice digs up there, actually. <laughs> Yes, he uh, had an uncle who lived in uh, in Tuscany as well. Uh, that was, and he had uh, other uh, sisters and siblings who ended up uh, settling in Italy uh, after the war as well. So, so I mean, after the wars uh, and and the empire even ended, there were still a Napoleonic, a strong Napoleonic connection to Italy. That is fascinating, the name Napoleon. I don't know why I never put that together. If you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is author Christopher Kelly. His new book is called Italy Invades, How Italians Conquered the World. You know, I, I kind of wish, uh, I mean, I love the Italian spirit. And, and I don't know if they still take naps in the afternoon, eating a late dinner, you know, really late, like 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. But all the shops seem to close during the afternoon. I think that actually helps people be uh, more productive. And either way, it's kind of nice. Does that still go on in Italy, or is that kind of fading away in the face of all the pressure to, you know, just go, go all the time? is a different lifestyle. I mean, there been many people say it's a healthier lifestyle, oh, yeah. Mediterranean diet and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it is a different approach to life to, uh, you know, to uh, working to, uh, to live rather than living to work. All of that, I think, is, is part of it. Um, but yeah, 
Um, I mean, of course, the Italians have deep connections with the Americans, too. We, oh, yeah. we talk in our book about uh, there's a man, Giovanni Martini, who was Italian, John Martin, who ended up uh, joining Custer's 7th Cavalry and fighting at the Battle of Little Bighorn, and he was Custer's bugler, and he carried away Custer's final message, which we reproduce in the book. And he, as a result, he survived the battle, which took place in 1876, and he was actually... Uh, killed in 1922 in Brooklyn after being hit by a beer truck. Yeah. <laughs> but they've they've fought in all American wars for sure. I mean, Italians are a big part of American culture. No Absolutely. I mean, they, in, in World War II, when you had about 16 million men uh, and women serving, about 1 out of 12 were of Italian heritage. Uh, one of whom, John Bassalone, uh, won a Medal of Honor at Guadalcanal went did liberty bonds for a while and then went back to uh, and was killed in the first wave of Iwo Jima uh, and it was dramatized recently by Spielberg in the Pacific. Oh, that uh, what what was what was the name of the movie that's that it, was, it was a TV miniseries ah. called The Pacific, just Ooh. called The Pacific and it was by Spielberg and and they and Bassalone was a, a prominent character in the in the in the uh, series. And I mean today you can find in Raritan, New Jersey a Bassalone statue, and they celebrate John Bassalone Day every every year in in uh, Raritan, New Jersey. No kidding. Well, interesting how you know English culture just seems to uh, appears to dominate American culture, but in fact it really doesn't. I mean, what could be more American than pizza, for example? <laughs> and you know, when, whenever I travel in Italy, which has been a while, unfortunately, you know, you could go to any little town anywhere, go to any little uh, uh, diner or restaurant, pizza would be excellent. The food is great. You can't say that about America, unfortunately. Uh, and in the the late Middle Ages, the early, uh, you know, the years of uh, exploration, the grand exploration around, you know, the entire world, the it was called the Age of Exploration. There was this fellow, Christopher Columbus. And in what ways did he reflect how Italy impacted the world? He had to go to, to get money, I guess, from, from Spain. But to, how, how did Christopher Columbus impact the entire world? Well, Columbus has become a lightning rod for criticism these days oh, yeah. uh, and has become a very kind of controversial topic amongst historians and others. Uh, but I mean, I I believe that you know that at the end of the day, Christopher Columbus was neither you know angel nor nor devil, uh-huh. but that he was a man, and that he was, and also he was an Italian man, or specifically he was a Genoese man. Both of his parents were born in Genoa. Uh, his father was a miller, and so he had a strong Italian connection. And his voyages to the New World had even a deeper Italian connection. That was that it was Italian bankers that largely financed his journeys, and not the kind of apocryphal tale of the sale of, of Queen Isabella's jewels. Oh. So there was an Italian connection right at the start of, of this age of exploration. And, you know, I mean, that and Columbus, no matter what you can say about him, and yes, there was devastation amongst the native people, oh, yeah. indigenous peoples afterwards, but there, they, there was, uh, he did change the world, uh, and und- I think undeniably. In what ways? The, well, the, the Colombian exchange that followed him, uh, that, I mean, introduced to Europe, for instance, uh, cocoa and chocolate, 
yeah. uh, that we that Europe didn't have before. Uh, also, you know, maybe on a different side of things, tobacco too um, was was another product of of the Colombian exchange, uh, and even something as you know as uh, as mundane as the uh, the hammock. The hammock was actually a Caribbean technology that didn't exist in Europe until. It was discovered by by Columbus and and his uh, his his crew his crew, and they brought back the idea of the, the hammock, uh, which of course made sea transport a lot more comfortable for oh. for Western sailors. Oh my goodness! Sure, then they. Oh yeah, I, I'm not good on so ships. <laughs> so if you have a picture in your mind of of you know somebody uh, smoking a cigar, eating chocolate in a hammock, uh, that's all because of Columbus. Ah, no kidding. That's that's great. Well, my my kids will be happy to know about uh, the the chocolate connection. Of course, that comes from uh, you know we now consider South America and that that entire area. There's there's another person that frankly I had never heard of, uh, Virginia Oldine. Old, old you can pronounce it better. The Countess of Castiglione, and her role in the region's history. Tell us about uh, about her and pronounce her name, please. Sure. Uh, her name was the Countess of Castiglione, and she was the cousin of Camillo Cavour, who was the Prime Minister of Piedmont. Uh, his, Cavour's desire was to unite all of Italy under the, the uh, Piedmontese umbrella, the House of Savoy. And the obstacle in his way was the Austrians. And he had a, a cousin, a beautiful cousin, who's na- who was the Countess of Castiglione. And he sent her, at the age of 19, off to Paris. And a few years later, she became the mistress of Napoleon III. And not long after that, uh, French troops were assisting uh, Piedmont to fight against the Austrians to help to unite the, the country. So Camille, Castig- the Countess Castiglione was a, a kind of a founding mother of Italy. And she, in a sense, proves that, you know, uh, first of all, that the Italians invaded France, in a sense, and that not all invasions are led by men, and some are... Some very successful ones have been led by women as well. Fascinating, fascinating. Powerful women. (laughs) There's been a lot of them throughout history and uh, have generally, as you say, been ignored. And, you know, of course, we all know about the incredible power of of Rome and the Roman Empire. Uh, But in addition to the power of ancient Rome that, that everybody knows about, Italy actually, as you describe, had other powerful and influential nation states, such as you've mentioned a few times Genoa and Venice. Tell us a bit about those powerful and influential nation states, Genoa and Venice. Well, I mean, you think of Venice, and of course, Marco Polo immediately comes to mind in his his travels and voyages all the way to China. He uh, touched on to Korea as well. We mentioned him in the Korean chapters. Uh, he. I mean, so, and you and you had an Italian connection with China, with China that is surprisingly deep. I mean, from 1900 until 1947, there was actually an Italian colony in China in Tianjin, which is nearby Beijing. So you had, I mean, speaking of imperialism, you had a, 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 an Italian outpost, um, you know, in actually in China, um, which you know goes back to Marco Polo and the Venetians. Um, so I mean, there was this duel in the Mediterranean. Uh, between the Venetians and the Genoese were rivals for control, uh, and they 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 did, of course they fought amongst themselves for control of islands like Crete and other outposts in the Mediterranean. 
And and these adventures were to get uh, interesting spices. They brought back, as you mentioned, tobacco and things like that. So, what right. what were Genoa and Venice fighting about? What what was their what were their common goals that they had to fight each other about? Well, I think it was it trade. I mean, Venetians, of course, are famous for their glass. I mean, they were they were hoping to you know, trade and sell their goods everywhere and to also to buy and sell. There were famous merchants that uh, went all over the world. I mean, the fact that, and they, I mean, I think as a generalization, uh, Italians are outgoing people. I mean, literally and yes. figuratively. Yes. I mean, from Marco Polo, I mean, Garibaldi went all over, went to South America. Garibaldi was on Staten Island, uh, in, in fact, uh, for mm. a while. Um, so you, you had this, I think that, that the Italians are, Outgoing and at the same time welcoming. I mean, you've you've experienced that going to Italy, oh, yeah. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And that they're they understand about travel. They understand about you know how to make travel entertaining. I think and as a destination, but also as travelers themselves. Hmm. And and what about uh, democracy? Uh, you know, it, it we this show is of course called Keeping Democracy Alive, and and right. uh, you know, democracy has many different roots. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, you know the specifically Italian roots uh, of democracy with regard to the Senate and um, other things. Well, I mean, there are there was I mean, even the Roman Empire uh, was not all just a propaganda machine, although there was propaganda in the, I mean, for instance, I mean, every, uh, many nations have claimed that God was on their side in fighting various wars. <laughs> the Romans went even further than that, and they, on their coinage, for instance, they'd have, you know, Augustus, a portrait of Augustus, and they call him Divi, divine. They, so they said that not only are we supported by God, but that we're actually led by gods, our emperors are gods, uh, which was amazing. But at the same time, the, there was a diversity uh, of opinion inside of Rome. It wasn't all one thing or all, say, pro-imperialism. I mean, it was Tacitus that puts in the words of a uh, of a rebel chieftain the line that uh, he that he called uh, it made a de- that Rome made a desolation and called it peace, which is a famous kind yeah. of line about about warfare. But the fact that that was cons- that was written not by a, a, a barbarian, but written by a Roman. Uh, which was kind of an anti-imperialist attitude um, expressed by a Roman, and and the idea of, of democracy is kind of the opposite of you know God is on our side, our our leader is directly from God or a God. I mean, democracy is kind of the opposite of that. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that yes. I mean, you're talking about the a statement of power politics by an empire. I mean, to be, I mean, the Roman Empire as a military machine was a juggernaut, no question about it. To be in the path of a Roman invasion was a very uncomfortable place to be. Uh, but at the same time, that being said, if you, your country were con- conquered by Rome, there, would, there were some clear benefits to being Roman. I mean, that the Romans are going to build roads, they're going to build baths, improve hygiene. They're going to bring literacy, to men, in many cases, to parts of the world that, that really hadn't had it before. They're going to bring tr- the possibility of trade. So, so it's kind of like, uh, I mean, when you uh, try to do um, ethical uh, evaluations of, say, military invasions and incursions, it depends on your perspective. If you're, you know, I mean, a victim of an invasion, that's one thing. On the other hand, you might be a beneficiary of a Roman invasion, too. 
And and so did they bring democracy with them? I mean, we here in the United States have, have oftentimes talked about bringing democracy around the world and imposing it, you know, at the end of a gun. What about uh, the carrying forth, you know, the tradition of, of democracy? Well, it, I don't know if they brought democracy, but they did. I mean, with regard to, say, religion, they brought, they had a, a a uh, pluralistic attitude. I mean, they would if they in in they were religions in Asia Minor that they would you know appropriate that they hold the temple the, those gods and bring them to Rome and bring the priests to Rome and have it be worshipped alongside Roman gods. So so there wasn't a kind of like a, you know it's my way or the highway type of attitude, shall we say, in Rome, but that there was. Um, there was some cultural diversity. I mean, at the same point, you, you wouldn't say. I mean, it was a, yes, slavery existed. The the rights of women were were very limited in the ancient world, wow. uh, and so I mean, it was. You know, I mean, it, it was much better to be at the top of the of the pecking order. No question. Well, yeah, I mean, those, you know, discrimination-based, you know, whites ruling, uh, women less than, that that's only changed relatively recently. I mean, that's been all over, you know, right. the world basically for, forever. And uh, again, if you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, looking at the, at the roots of democracy a little bit here, and Italian imperialism, uh, Bert Cohen here, our guest today is author uh, Christopher Kelly, who uh, his new book is Italy Invades, How Italians Conquered the World. The Great War, now known as the First World War, World War I, it, it appears to me, from my limited knowledge of it, it kind of put Italy in a terrible bind. I wonder if you could tell us about that difficult position and how they decided to fight against Austria-Hungary, which I think kind of you know started the war, and, and their ally Germany. So tell us about the, the difficult position that, that Italy found itself in in 1914. Uh, in 1914, Italy did not immediately join the war. Actually, in a sense, Italy switched sides because Italy had been involved in alliance in alliance with Germany and Austria, but they found that uh, the way that the war started was not to their liking. Their interests in, in the Balkans were not the same, not aligned with Austria's at all. And Italy, instead of joining on the side of the central powers, ended up uh, joining the allied powers, not right away, but in the spring of 1915. Uh, the First World War was a very difficult experience for Italy. I mean, they lost over 600,000 Italians were killed in World War One, which you know, by comparison is about six times more than the total American losses in the war. Uh, we lost a little over 100,000. So it was a very costly war, fought it mainly in the mountains, and um, and there was a lack of satisfaction afterwards uh, because the Italians felt that they did not make as many gains as they had hoped, uh, yeah. given the price that they'd paid. And it was Mussolini tried to it exploited that in his uh, march to power in, mm. in, in 1922. So, they, again, they started off not wanting to be involved in the war, but then again, they had some uh, disagreements with, with the great uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was right pretty much on, on their border, right? And then, so did that antipathy between the two lead to uh, Italy uh, taking up a side? Well, I, mean, I think Austria really has been a traditional rival of Italy for many centuries. I mean, that there have been, I mean, in the Napoleonic, Napoleonic era and uh, many uh, over many 
years. There's been a rivalry between the two, and I mean, they uh, as a result, though the I mean the Austri- the Italians did gain Trento. I mean, they get, did make territorial gains. Of lake Garda, for instance, the largest uh, yeah. uh, lake in Italy, uh, was half Austrian, half Italian before the war, and after the war, uh, it's it's all Italian from now on till to today, uh, for example. But it was, and I mean, there were things in the war. I mean, they, the uh, Johnny Caproni, uh, for instance, was a in, made airplanes that, and he, they made them. And the very first bombing run ever in history was actually an Italian run in 1911 in Libya. Uh, but the Caproni planes were good enough that they were purchased by the U.S. Navy uh, for their uh, air fleet in during World War One. And we do like their cars. What can I tell you? It's it's. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I you know, I, I think it, it's sort of an American affliction among men when you see a Ferrari, a Maserati, or a Lamborghini. You, you kind of drool. You know, it's almost like pornography or something. You know, just like I want one of those. They look so beautiful. They are amazing. They are the it's- standard. Italians have a wonderful sense of design. There's no question about oh, that. Yeah. I mean, the, the I mean, you, Ferraris are you know Ferraris are advertised on television in China, uh, and, oh. and for example, which which you know I don't think they do that anywhere else in the world, but they do there, and they are of course you know sought after a symbol uh, status symbol you know in all over the world. Um, mm. So yeah, no, they have an incredible sense of design, I think, and oh, yeah. um, a sense of taste, design. Etc. Yeah. Yeah, and Italian lighting, Italian furniture. It's just it's a beauty to behold for sure. sure. It's just just something about the Italian spirit. I don't know what it is, and I look forward to the new Alfa Romeos coming over here. Uh, sure. And you know, again, going back to the to the Great War, uh, they lost like half a million people. And what ways did Italy emerge from the First World War a winner? And then. I suppose I need to ask, what happened at Versailles? Things really messed up for a lot of things in Versailles and the settlement of that war. Well, I mean, there was, I think, a great deal of over-optimism and the the war to end all wars, I mean, as the phrase classically went, that, I mean, obviously did not prove to be the case by any means and and sowed the seeds instead for the Second World War uh, with it, unfortunately. Um, The Italians... Did make gains at Versailles, territorial gains, but um, but they but they were still there was a, a lingering unhappiness. I mean, the sacrifice. I mean, if you walk through Italian towns, you can see uh, memorials to the the lost from World War One. Oh, yeah. uh, really, all over the place. I mean, yeah. there. So every little town uh, lost people, of course, um, and was you know suffered as a result of the war. Um, yeah. So, so how did uh, Italy end up, well, I guess it was Mussolini, uh, linking up slowly, not so earnestly, with, with, with Hitler? Uh, and, and, you know, they, get, they paid a heavy price for being involved with uh, Germany as well. How, I don't know how many Italians uh, were killed and how much devastation there was in, in Italy. Actually, uh, an old friend of mine, George McGovern, uh, bombed Italy during the Second World yes, he War. Yes, did. Uh, to, go ahead. Yeah, no, he absolutely. Uh, McGovern uh, bombed in, in Italy. I think he was based down in Foggia, or, or, I believe. And uh, well, there was an interesting book about that came out about that too. And um, the, also, the author of uh, uh, Catch Twenty Two, Heller, uh, oh. also bombed from Corsica oh, wow. uh, into places in Italy as well. 
and and how how badly uh, was was Italy uh, destroyed in that Second World War? There were there was a lot of devastation. Monte Cassino as it was a famous uh, monastery that was used by the Germans uh, and was a site of a tremendous battle in the mountains in the Apennines during the war and was basically leveled. Um, and I think it has been uh, rebuilt, but uh, but it was. Um, you know, there was lots of destruction, and also in the north, there was lots of bombing that took place, uh, lots of, of suffering. There was a great deprivation, starving. I mean, mm. a, I mean, Italy was on flat on its back at the end of the war, and so it was desperate in need for for assistance, which the Americans uh, did really help to provide. Yeah. Uh, I think, fortunately. <laughs> and I wonder if if uh, the popularity of pizza began then with a lot of American men there. We actually talked about it in our book, America Invades. Uh, there was a connection. There was a, a guy, a Swedish-American, who uh, had served, uh, who's from my hometown of Sacramento, uh, and his name was uh, Shaky Johnson. And he oh. was in the U.S. Navy, and he called on ports in Italy, and he brought um, he brought a love for pizza back to the United States, and he founded a, a chain, a family restaurant chain called Shaky's, yeah. which was the first uh, family-oriented pizza chain in the U.S., which is, unfortunately doesn't exist any longer, but it's been copied many times. And, of course, you know, it helps to explain the American love for pizza today. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we certainly, I don't know, all things Italian, many things Italian. Uh, and you write that, I find this interesting, you wrote that uh, Benito Mussolini declared that Italians were, quote, a mediocre race of good-for-nothings only capable of singing and eating gelato. <laughs> He did actually say that, and then I I, I went I went on to to say that uh, that after he was killed, that uh, Italians resumed uh, uh, singing and eating gelato. Um, <laughs> but, but after him, but yes, no, it was uh, he was. I mean, the Italians have been their own worst critics over the years, oh. and, and Mussolini is a is a perfect example of that. And, and I mean, they of course have a sense of humor about themselves too. I mean, uh, they true. they laugh at they know their own foibles better than better than anyone. Oh, interesting! I wish we did. So, so with an attitude looking down on on his people, uh, how how did Mussolini get so powerful? If he if he thought of Italians as just you know uh, a mediocre race of good for nothings, how did he get so powerful? Um, let's say, I mean, Hitler too also kind of cursed the Germans at the end of the war as well. I mean, and blamed it all on the Germans. Uh, so, the so I mean, there was this kind of you know this certainly this love hate relationship between the Italian people and Mussolini, and the Italian people were very uncomfortable when he declared war on the United States uh, right after Pearl Harbor, uh, because I mean many of them had cousins living in the United States, and, and the United States had never attacked Italy, and all of a sudden they were he was thrust because of the alliance with with Hitler and the Japanese. He was putting them at, at odds against against their own family members in some cases. So it was a, hmm. it was a difficult time for uh, for Italy, to be sure. Interesting. Now, most tourists of Italy, and there are a lot of tourists throughout Italy, there's so much to discover there. Sure. Uh, it is the center of the world. That's this person's opinion. Uh, most, most tourists to Italy see centuries... Roads lead to Rome. Uh, well, true, and they did. I mean, the, the Roman roads led everywhere. Uh, right. it, it, when we go there, we see centuries of relics and see Italy as much older than the United States. But you point out that Italy is much younger than the United States. Please explain that. 
as a as a nation that's that's true i mean that as i mean we think of italy as being ancient and of course the romans were an ancient people and and italy has a long history a rich history and going back many many years but at the same time as an as a state uh italy only really came into being as a nation state in the 1860s i mean with uh, garibaldi taking sicily with the uh, the, the Napoleon III helping to fight the Austrians to, to throw the Austrians out of northern Italy, and so this unific and then Rome only becoming Italian in 1870. So, so and before that, the capital was actually Florence. Uh, so, I mean, the capital of Italy um, changed after 1870. Uh, so, so I mean, Italy is in as a nation state is a younger nation, and, and Germany is too is a younger nation sure. mm-hmm. than um, than the United States. Yeah, that's fascinating. They they were a series of fiefdoms, or I just I'm not sure what what you would even even call them. It, 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 why did what was their struggle about for so many years to become a nation? Um, what, was this, what was the struggle? The I mean, after well, it goes back to the fall of Rome. After Rome falls in the fifth century, I mean, you, they tried to defend it. I mean, Hadrian, of course, built his wall in the second century. Uh, there are some politicians that are trying to build walls today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but but Hadrian actually did it, and in a, and we know kind of what happened. It ended up it succeeded for a while, and then it until it stopped succeeding, and then uh, and then it became industrial uh, or building materials for uh, for the people in northern England to use to build churches and garden walls and so forth. Uh, it's actually a wonderful site to to uh, visit. Uh, I walked about half of it with my son last summer mm. uh, along Hadrian's Wall, uh, and it's great to it's a great uh, hike and and uh, sight to see. And where is that exactly? Uh, Hadrian's Wall goes from uh, Newcastle to Carlisle in northern England, and I mean also I think you talk about democracy. You're involved with democracy. Right. In 2014, you had the Scottish referendum. Uh, which took place where uh, mm-hmm. the UK, the Scottish decided to stay in the UK as opposed to uh, being a, a separate country. But I would submit that 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 would never have taken place if uh, Hadrian hadn't built his wall. If the Romans had managed to con- conquer all of Britain rather than stopping essentially at the Scottish border, then the whole Scottish identity would never have been created in the first place. Yeah. Interesting. I I love hidden history. It just explains so much. And in what ways was Italy said to be unlucky? That that's sort of surprising to hear. Uh, well, uh, uh, Italians have have cursed the fate of Italy when it was divided. I mean, after so after the fall of Rome in, in the fifth century, the western side of the empire is it goes into this. this their darker period, and it's divided into many smaller states and who right. are rivals of each other. And there's lots of of basically Italian civil wars and the Florentines fighting the Sienese, the Genoese dueling with the Venetians. You know, and all of this is going on, and um, and so there is a lack of of unity that and uh, that and so that limits their national. Uh, Power, I guess you you would say, uh, until they eventually became a united nation in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. And in what ways did did the Second World War actually become kind of a civil war in Italy? And and what scars still remain from that? Well, I I, I 
it was interesting. I was giving a speech in, in Seattle to an Italian club, and I, I spoke about the partisans, the Italian partisans fighting on the side of the Allies in World War II. And then after the speech, an, an elderly man came up in a, with, in a walker and it introduced himself as... Uh, as one of the Italian partisans, so it was fascinating to meet. I mean, you talk. I talk about history, but other people obviously have lived it, right. and um, and it's it's and and he spoke largely in Italian, and my Italian wasn't good enough to understand. But the one thing that I did unmistakably get from him is that he had no fondness for the SS. I can imagine why. Well, t- tell us about that civil war and and and. But yes, okay. So the partisans were fighting on the, and many sure. of them had. Uh, had connections with the with the left. Um, some of them were communists and socialists and so forth. So that many partisans were were uh, that were politically there, and so they saw fascism as an ideological enemy. Um, but so, and then you had the the um, this co-belligerent forces who were fighting on the sides of the Allies too, and they were not necessarily so politically clear cut. Um, but and they were fighting against. Mussolini's you know, remnant state up in the north, uh, the Salo Republic, it was called, mm. um, that were trying to uh, stay loyal to Hitler and, and and were still you know aligned mm. with Hitler. And so there are still some scars from that now. And I, I mean, I think that the after, uh, I mean, some of the fallout from World War II was was a lot of, of bitterness uh, between some of these rival groups. Um, and I think some of that persists th- uh, today through, I mean, I don't uh, c- I count myself uh, by any means an expert on Italian politics, which is a, a mm. subject that's way beyond my, <laughs> my pay grade. But, uh, but I do think that some of the, the, the chaos of Italian politics is attributable to the, the kind of the, the bitter feelings from, from the war. And certainly, it, I mean, Italian politics, I, I talk with my brother occasionally. I don't know how many governments they have had, you know, in just, say, the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, Berlusconi, a media mogul, a billionaire, kind of uh, egotistical. Hmm, who does that remind me of here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and there's this uh, clown fellow, Beppo something or other. Uh, right. Uh, it's right. just, it's amazing. And you have uh, Mussolini's uh, grandchildren, his, his granddaughter, who's a deputy as well, and you, you have all kind of oh, a cast of, of interesting characters, yes. And many, many different parties. I have no idea how, how many parties. My, my brother used to tell me about uh, wealthy Italian communists, which seems like a contradiction right. in terms. Right. But it's Italy. <laughs> it, it, you know, just no explaining it. You know, it's, it's sort of like, right. uh, you know, forget it. It's Chinatown, like in that, that old movie. Now, the, the American Pentagon itself has an Italian connection. I wonder if you could explain right. that a little bit. Sure. The American Pentagon, which is, of course, an icon of military power known around the globe, has an Italian, a strong Italian connection, and that is that it was based upon the design of the star fortifications that were used in the Renaissance and that Michelangelo used to help to defend Florence uh, at that time. So, so, there, so when the Pentagon was built in the, right in the early stages of World War II and the lead-up before that, and it, was, you know, it has this uh, Italian, Italian design for it. Mm. And, and it's a pretty good design. There are lots, of, lots and lots of Italian towns that, that have that uh, sort of star 
fortification, which was great for defense with the walls around it. I, I know, you know, rather right. somewhat the uh, the walls around the uh, the town of Luca. I don't want to tell too many people around Luca because it's so wonderful and it's already been discovered. But people are going, it's a great town. It's a wonderful place. Uh, if, if you just tuned in to uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, a little bit uh, turn to Italy today. We're talking with our guest today, Christopher Kelly. His new book is it- Italy Invades, How Italians Conquer the World. And you write that, quote, Italy rebuilt, rebuilt herself from the rubble of the Second World War by launching a series of commercial and cultural invasions. What do you mean by that? I can think of areas such as fashion, food, and of course, great cars. Tell us about, you know, how the launching of a series of commercial and cultural invasions uh, helped rebuild Italy after the Second World War. Well, I mean, Italy, uh, essentially, uh, its its swords were, were smashed into plowshares at the end of World War II. And instead of being kind of a military, militaristic and imperial nation, it turned to trade. And it was already, you know, by nature outgoing. So it was natural for it to get involved in, in exports. And so, and it has this incredibly strong sense of design, which it, you know, harnessed yes. to, to build great export products uh, from cars to clothes to wine, etc. And, I mean, you've even seen, for instance, in China, uh, you've had... Things like uh, you've had uh, IPOs that have been launched to sell. Um, I mean, recently you had. Um, uh, I mean, you have a, a, a fashion. Let's see, a Brunello Cuccinelli that makes uh, a, a very high-end uh, clothing, men's clothing, particularly raised in 2012, 200 million with an IPO. With the proceeds were to build stores in Hong Kong and Shanghai. So, so I mean, this is kind of an example of an Italian. You know, outpost uh, is obviously not military, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, but an Italian outpost. You know, on the other side of the world, so to speak. Nice, nice, and uh, peaceful. I like that. Now, much of the world uh, today is, you know, there's a bit of a of a tinderbox, not unlike the days before the start of the First World War. We have the tensions in the Middle East, Syria, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, etc. What what role is Italy playing to possibly tamp down some of the uh, the tensions that, that there are? Well, Italy is still involved, and in, even after the war, even though, I mean, it turned to trade, uh, Italy still has, has a, a middle-sized uh, military uh, infrastructure. They have participated in, in 2010, they were participating in, in peacekeeping missions in 22 different countries. They're a founding member of NATO. Uh, in 2015, you had Italian fighter jets that were uh, based in the Baltic Republics in Latvia, were intercepting Russian fighters. They were playing kind of cat and mouse with uh, with Putin's planes uh, that were being kind of aggressive. So you have, I mean, Italy continues to have a role. And they have, you know, in a more significant military, for instance, by comparison with the United Kingdom. I mean, the United Kingdom has no uh, aircraft carriers except, I mean, no um, aircraft carriers available for the Royal Navy today, whereas Italy has two, the Cavour and the Garibaldi, for example. So they're they're very very active in peacekeeping, and that takes a, a, a lot of courage, which is kind of the uh, the antithesis of the uh, you know fun that's made of Italian soldiers. And, and you know we have a much more globalized world today. You talked about in the age of exploration, 
bringing things back, the chocolate, the tobacco, the hammocks, for example, which, yep. you know, is like an early globalization. What, what about now? Italy's participation in this whole very significant globalization, making the world that much smaller and, and you know, sharing culture and st- stuff like that. Well, I think they are, and I, I call them in the, the softer side of globalization. I mean, that, yeah. that, that uh, I mean, the globalization gets kind of a bad name or in, in some, certain circles. But, you know, when you think about pizza around the world or, or Chianti or, or mm-hmm. red and white check tablecloths, yeah. um, that doesn't scare anybody, I don't think. <laughs> so, so. True. Nobody's scared of pizza, that's for sure. <laughs> no. And Italian food. I mean, it just, it doesn't get better than that, I suppose. I mean, there's... Go ahead. And there's a military connection. I mean, like, fusilli pasta, for example, I mean, is a great example of, of, you know, the Italians invading the language. Not only, I mean, lots of language. I mean, fusilli is is the Italian word for, or fusil is the word for rifle. And the shape of a fusilli pasta is the shape of a bullet traveling through a rifled barrel. And so, uh, so there's this connection between... You know, if you see pasta and and uh, and of course uh, the military. And nationalism is something that uh, you know it comes out of. Well, it was a big part of the First World War, and it's it's still it's a I think a, a big problem. And you, you have it. It's just all over the world. And today, if you look at Italy, there are a lot of refugees coming in, a lot from Africa and other places. I wonder about, you know, and do people from who are escaping the war in Syria, do they go to Italy? What is Italy doing about that? I don't imagine they're trying to build walls to keep them out. But then again, there is, you know, some nationalistic uh, sense in Italy. But you know more about that than I. Uh, it's a, the refugee problems are a real uh, source of difficulty, political difficulty, and head scratching in Italy today. Um, they, they're, and of course, the Syrian refugee crisis has been devastating all over Europe, and I think that it has had some impact on Italy as well. Not as much as on other parts, Hungary and other parts of the and Germany and so forth, but still, it's rippled out to Italy as well. Um, so I think it's it's, um, and I mean they don't. I don't think they have you know they have all, all the an- they don't have all the answers for that for sure yeah and and the economy has been you know it's not as bad as greece but but it's part of you know southern europe they are, they gave up the lira a long time ago and are part of the euro what is there uh, i know that in lots of different countries there's kind of a reaction against staying on the euro is is what's going on with italy with regard to that um, let's see. I mean, the transition when they went from the lira to uh, to the euro, uh, prices on everything went up. Yeah, uh, right. It was a huge inflation from from real estate to you know bottles of wine to almost everything. Yeah, so got yeah. repriced upwards. So um, I mean, I think that the euro in general has been uh, good for uh, Italy, and you do have you know Italians that are at the at the top of the. Of the food chain in terms of the fin- of financially how to organize Europe today, so you have Italian leadership in in that f- in the financial field as well. Is there a middle class in Europe? There used to, be, I mean, in Italy, there used to be one in the United States. Oh yes, I mean absolutely. I think there's a there's a big middle class in in uh, in Italy, oh, nice. and and you know lots of political diversity, lots of opinions, and I mean almost. Too many parties. I mean, like, I mean, you can, I mean, getting a majority to agree on anything is a real <laughs> is a real trial in Italy because there are so many parties and so many kind of different diverse viewpoints that are that are fighting it out. 
Uh, well, I love that diversity, and that's real democracy, people at work actually participating, understanding their government. I would, my guess is the average Italian probably knows a heck of a lot more about their own government and even our government than we do. That's real participation in, in self-government, and I, I like that a lot. Well, the book is called Italy Invades, How Italians Conquered the World. Uh, the author is Christopher Kelly, and who is the publisher on this? I'm sorry, I don't have that information. Uh, we are uh, published by Book Publishers Network, uh, uh-huh. and we have a website, uh, italyinvades.com, that uh, people can find, uh, get free copy. I mean, get uh, signed copies of the book uh, oh, with uh, free shipping. Oh, fantastic! I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and we're going to go out with a song by Giacomo Puccini from uh, Luca, played by a great uh, British rock guitarist. Thank you so much for being with us, Christopher Kelly. Thanks very much for your time. Jeff Beck here. From the Puccini Opera, 